If you have your Bible here today, we're going to be in the Old Testament again. Book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter number 6 today. We're continuing on our study through the life of David. David the shepherd king. The title of today's message is God's Work, God's Way. In the 1940s, there was a young scientist at the University of Illinois named Arthur Galston. He was working on a way to make soybeans grow faster, and he was having some success with a chemical called triodobenzoic acid. That's a mouthful. The discovery would change the world for good. More soybean production could not only transform agriculture, but a host of other industries as well. And Galston's big finding earned him acclaim in his field and a doctorate in botany. However, Galston's breakthrough came with a cost. Scientists discovered that when his formula was applied in large quantities, it would cause plants to shrivel and die. Now, for years, nobody saw a reason uh, to use that chemical in such a destructive way. That is, until the United States entered the Vietnam War. And then military researchers tinkered around with Galston's formula and eventually led to the invention of something we know today as Agent Orange, that deadly herbicide that was dropped over huge swaths of Vietnamese jungles to kill everything that was green. Galston was horrified when he learned that his invention was being used to destroy life rather than give life. He actually made a trip to Vietnam while the war was raging, and he was appalled at the death and destruction. In fact, he coined a new word for his terrible use of that invention. He called it ecocide. Of course, today we know that many of the soldiers who were in the Vietnam War and who were exposed to Agent Orange suffered all kinds of terrible side effects, including cancer. I think that Arthur Galson's story is a tragic example of good intentions gone wrong. We all know that familiar saying. The road to hell is paved with what, church? Good intentions. You ever tried to do something good only to have it backfire in your face? This might happen if you try to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Your motives aren't pure. Or maybe you try to do the right thing, but you do it in the wrong way. Your methods are flawed. I remember when I was a college student, there was a fundamentalist preacher who went to the center student quad every day, and there he preached hellfire and brimstone to the students as they came by. Sometimes he was wearing a, a sandwich sign uh, condemning everybody to hell, and he thumped his big King James Bible in the face of all these college students. And there with a finger pointing to all of them, he would condemn the girls for wearing short shorts and then condemn the boys for lusting after the girls. <laughs> Needless to say, I saw many people get in fights with what we called the pit preacher. They'd yell at him. Uh, they'd promise bodily harm to him. Some people would throw food at his direction. I don't think he had very many converts. And I think about that example. Here was a man who, yes, he was doing the right thing. He was preaching the gospel, or at least part of the gospel, but he wasn't doing it in the right way. 
There was all judgment and, and, and hell and punishment and no grace, no love, no, no mercy. So he may have been doing the right thing, but he was doing it in the wrong way. And that gave the gospel a bad name. Now David knew about this very matter because he sabotaged one of his first acts as king. In 2 Samuel 6, we read about David's desire to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. David has the best intentions as this chapter starts, but the execution of his plan, oh, it's full of blunders. And this is a classic case of trying to do the right thing in the wrong way. This passage also has a lot to say to us today about the nature of worship, how we approach God, how we esteem God. And so as we study this passage today, it's going to become evident to us that church, if we're going to please God, we have to do God's work God's way. Number one, I want you to notice with me today, number one, David's desire. David's desire, we'll read in verse one. The Bible says that David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah, and Ao, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ao went before the ark. Now, at one time, the ark of the covenant was held in the highest esteem among God's people. If you go back to the days of Moses, you'll remember, especially Exodus chapter 25, God commissioned His people to construct a portable worship center which was called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. The central piece of furniture in the tabernacle was this wooden chest overlaid with gold known as the Ark of the Covenant. And everywhere that Israel went during the time of Moses, they carried the Ark with them. In fact, in Exodus 25, the Lord even spelled out the exact dimensions, the length, the width, and the height of the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, if you were to transfer those cubits of the Old Testament to today, this box would have been about four feet long, two feet wide, and two feet deep. Now inside the ark were some of the most precious Hebrew artifacts. There was a jar of unspoiled manna. There was Aaron's staff, which had budded long after it had been cut from a tree. And there were those stone tablets of the engraved Ten Commandments. On top of that was a heavy golden lid called the mercy seat. There were two cherubim that had outstretched faces and wings that looked down upon the golden lid. And once a year, the Bible prescribed that on the holiest day of the calendar, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood of the atoning sacrifice to cover the sins of the nation for another year. And so this box, this container, was of immeasurable value to God's people. The objects that were within it represented something important. The manna represented God's provision that God would provide for them. The staff represented God's power that God's deliverance 
was always with them, and the commandments represented God's precepts. That God's law was meant to be abided by and kept. And of course, the ark itself represented the presence of God on the earth. Everywhere the people went, everywhere the cloud led or the pillar of fire led, the ark went with them. It was the presence of God among His people. So, it's difficult really to overstate the importance of the ark to Israel's identity and history. And yet, we read here in the text that under the neglectful leadership of Saul, that this holy item had gathered dust for decades in the house of a priest, which the Bible names as Abinadab. He lives about seven miles outside of Jerusalem, if you study the geography here. But notice this, without the ark in the tabernacle, what that meant is that the nation is not able to worship God in the way that he had commanded them. And so... David's first move as king, after he takes over the city of Jerusalem and he runs out the enemy, he says, we need a revival in this land. We've got to bring the ark out of the hiding place and make it center stage again. We need a national and spiritual revival, and it begins with right worship. And so that's his first move as king, to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And you've got to love David's heart here, don't you? It bothered him that the ark had been forgotten and that it lay in cobwebs in some forgotten priest's home. And his desire is to bring honor and glory back to the house of God and the people of God. And there's an application for you and I there, isn't it? And it's this. Those who have a heart for God will always look for a way to honor God. That should be... Your and I desire as well as we see here in the text from David that we should want to bring God glory with our lives. And this is what Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. Whatever you eat or whatever you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. I don't care if you're uh, sweeping the floor or playing a guitar or changing a dirty diaper or cooking a meal or praying or preaching a sermon. Do it all to the glory and the honor of God. I know some of you are sports fans in here. Maybe we've even got a few Clemson football fans in here right now, especially after they've proven to be champions two times in the past few years. After Clemson defeated Alabama a few years ago in the 2019 title game, I remember I was watching it. And reporters rushed on to the field, and they immediately stuck microphones in the face of Clemson's head coach, Dabo Sweeney, like they always do. Millions of people tuned in on ESPN. Everybody around the world is watching. What is the head coach going to say? The reporter asked him, Dabo, describe for the people what you're feeling right now. Here's what he said. Quote, he said, For me personally, joy comes from focusing on Jesus, others, and yourself. It's a blessing, and it's simply the grace of God, of the good Lord, that lets us experience something like this. All the credit, all the glory goes to the good Lord. I said it two years ago, you can't write a Hollywood script like this. Only God can do this. Only God can orchestrate this. Wow! On a football field, late one Saturday night, probably early Sunday morning by that time, there was a man of God. And he was having a little moment of testimony of what God had done in his life. I applaud that. I support that. I could cheer for that. 
Because when put in the spotlight and the microphone's in your face, the tendency is to say, well, you know, it was my coaching or it was my strategy or it was me, me, me. He deflects. I realize that you and I don't have the same platform as an athlete or a celebrity, but it should be our desire as well to take the spotlight off of ourselves and to shine it on Jesus Christ. That should be our desire. Take the name of Jesus out of the shadows, out of the closet, out of the church house on Sunday morning and bring Him out into the world and to your workplace, into your school, into your family and say, uh, yeah, but let me show you the glory and the grace of my God. He's a good God. He's a merciful God. He saved me. He redeemed me. He brought my life out of the pit of destruction. And, and I can't just be silent. And, and no, I'm not just going to keep my Jesus private. I can't contain it. I've got to let Jesus out everywhere I go. And I love it how when these kind of moments happen, the reporters don't know how to deal with Jesus. <laughs> right? They're used to bragging and chest-thumping and they're used to athletes who, who, who maybe really don't have the character to back up what they can do on the field. But when you bring Jesus into the equation, automatically these people get all awkward and stuffy. And uh, back to you, Jim. I love it. Why? Because nobody expects Jesus to be interjected in a moment like that. He disrupts things. He reminds us that there's a God we're accountable to. That was David's desire. And I applaud David. I say, yes, David, go for it. Bring the ark back. But the story keeps going. David's desire and David's disregard. Look at what the Bible says happens. David's disregard, verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs. This was a red a ticker tape parade moment. This was huge. Merrymaking, songs, praising, hallelujah. Bring out the lyres and the harps and the tambourines and the castanets and cymbals, verse 5 says. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand on the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Verse 7, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Huh. You talk about raining on David's parade. David is flying high in one moment until God brings down the hammer of judgment. Now, you can read this story in your modern American mind and think, Whoa, God. <laughs> Uh, aren't you a little overboard here? Couldn't we have given our boy Uzzah a little fair warning before you zapped him? I mean, this fellow Uzzah, he's trying to do a good thing. He's just trying to keep the ark from falling on the ground. And yet, next thing you know, he wakes up in heaven. <laughs> Who's to blame here? Who's at fault? Well, actually, it's David. Even though David's desire was to honor the Lord, notice, friend, he goes about it the wrong way. How so? Well, did you notice a small detail that keeps repeating itself? In fact, twice the text has already pointed out, and it's the way they were transporting the ark. Look what it said in verse 
3, if you back up, it says, and they, uh, they carried the ark of God on a what, church? New cart. Huh. Isn't that fascinating? Now, this may not mean very much to you and me, but it means a great deal to the Lord. You see, if you go back in the Old Testament, when the Lord commissioned the construction of the ark, He told Moses, I want you to build it this uh, far long, this way high, this way deep. I want you to overlay it with gold. I want you to use this kind of wood. I want you to make it Moses according to my exact specifications because there's a message in the box. I'm trying to convey something about myself and worship in this symbol. And if you go back in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 4, it talks about how they were to transport the ark. Notice what it says. Numbers 4, 5, 6, and 15. And when the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his sons shall come, that's the priesthood, and they shall take the covering veil and the, cover, the ark of testimony with it, and then they shall put it on a covering of badger skins and spread over it a cloth entirely of blue, and they shall insert its poles but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. You see, outside the ark, there were these golden rings. And they were supposed to take these poles and slide them through the rings, and the Levites, or the priestly class, were to be the ones who were to carry the ark. And because this ark was a picture of God's holiness, God says, don't lay a hand on this, or you will die. Now, why was the ark to be carried? Because the presence of God is a privilege, but also a weighty responsibility, a burden to be carried by the nation of Israel, who's supposed to be a testimony to the rest of the nations of the greatness and the glory of God. And so they're to carry this blessed burden. It's to picture sacrifice. Now, I'm sure... As David has this committee meeting before the parade begins, how are we going to transport this thing, David? Oh, well, well, look, there's a cart. We'll just, we'll just put it on the cart and, and roll it into town. Why did David do this? Where did he get this idea from? Well, in his commentary on 2 Samuel, Jerry Vines makes an interesting point that perhaps David got this idea from the Philistines. You see, if you go back in the book of 1 Samuel, in chapter 6, we read a story there where the Philistines captured the ark from God's people and they took it back to their camp on a cart. Now, they got away with it because they're pagans. But these are God's people. They had His word. They had His law. They had the prophets. They had Moses. They knew what they were doing. And Jerry Vines makes this point. He said, actually... David is following a pattern set by the world rather than by God. So here's the application that this text teaches us, and it's coming up on your screen. Look at this. God's work must be done God's way. You see, listen to me, friend. God cares what we do, but I would also argue that He cares even more about how we do it and why we do it. And if we want to worship and honor God, we have to come to Him on His terms, not ours. This is a message the 21st century church in America desperately needs to hear. 
we make the same mistake that David makes when we take our cues from the world rather than from the Word. And boy, do we have our own modern carts that we like to use to help God along, so to speak. I recently read that, listen to this, pastors at one of the nation's largest church, Bethel Church in Redding, California, over 11,000 members, they have come out and told their people it is okay for them to adopt new age and occult practices. If you needed another reason to get out of California, <laughs> there's another one you can add to the list. Why is it today that so many denominations are approving gay and transgender pastors? It's a new cart that we can wheel out to make our message more relevant, more appealing. We want to make the Bible more accepting, God more accessible, because after all, the world says uh, this is an old book and, and, and God's kind of fusty and, and, and God needs a 21st century update. He needs a new coat of paint to get along with the spirit of the age today. So bring out the cart, because the old way, the prescribed way, isn't good enough anymore. And so you have so many pastors who will read a passage like this and say, yeah, well, but, but, but God's not like that anymore. God's not holy anymore. God doesn't have a passion for judging sin and evil anymore like that. He's a, he's a different kind of God today. You can just believe any way you want to believe. As long as you're sincere and don't hurt anybody, God will just wink at your sin and, and, and love you. Today it's all the rage to make worship woke. To take the critical race theory, the, the junk that they're pumping into universities and into movies and entertainment and, and put that in the church. You can go to some churches today and hear more about wokeness and CRT than you can the Word of God. It's another cart that the church thinks it needs. How many worship services are like David's big production here? I mean, bring out the marching band, bring out the army, all the dignitaries. This was a big deal. It was a huge spectacle. This was David's day. And yet, how many worship services are just like that? You look at the service, it's got every modern bell and whistle that you can think of, and yet the people worshiping have failed to take into account the most important thing, and that is the holiness and righteousness of God. I'm sorry, but there's some things I just don't believe are acceptable in the house of God. I'm not cool. I'm not hip. I'm not trying to fit in. You'll never see me preaching a pair of skinny jeans, okay? It's not going to happen. And all God's people said, hey, you're not going to come in here one day and the lights are turned down and fog machines and laser shows. I'm not doing that. Why does the church want to worship in the dark anyway? I don't get it. This isn't a theater. This isn't a performance. This isn't a show to entertain you. This is more. This is worship. This is declaring authoritatively, thus says the Lord. And if you don't like it, that's okay. Because the Bible doesn't care who it offends. 
It'll offend you, just give it enough time. It'll step on your toes. And if your preacher isn't doing that, then he's not preaching the Word of God. Because I get daily assaulted by God's Word. And he shows me where I go wayward. We want to make church about us. It's not about us. Worship is about Him. Not about what makes me comfortable or what checks my boxes or even what makes me feel good. It's perfectly okay for you to come to church and get beat down by the Holy Spirit and leave with deep conviction. Maybe that's the appropriate and right response for you on that day if you're not obeying the Lord. However, there's also joy and sweetness and blessing in the house of the Lord. But we dare not divorce the holiness of God from the aspect of worship because this isn't a TED Talk and a rock show. This is an encounter with the living God of the universe who says you're broken, you're not good enough, you're trapped in your sins, and if you don't repent, you'll end up like Uzzah. Even worse. Nothing good can come when we compromise God's Word for our convenience. Adrian Rogers said it like this. He said, quote, Rivers and men both become crooked by following the path of least resistance. That's what a lot of churches want to do. They don't want to do the hard work of praying, of preaching exegetically, that is, mining out the truth of the Word of God. They just want to put on a show, attract people, make them feel good, stroke their ego, take home a big pay, and use the church as a stepping stone to build my own kingdom. And friend, that is idolatry, and it's wrong. And no wonder the church is so shallow today because we've said, oh, just parade the things of God out here on a worldly cart. Doesn't matter how you present it. Just make sure that people are happy. Well, that's David's desire and David's disregard. Please don't be mad at me today. I do love you. But what I'm saying here today is we need revival. And before you ever come in here and try and worship God, you need to understand who He is. He's not a God to be trifled with or to be insulted or to just be thrown around and tell a few jokes, and read some statistics, and pat ourselves on the back, aren't we good religious people, and go home. No, this is a holy God. Who, If He gave us what we all deserved, He would open a pit and swallow us up. But thank God, we don't get what we deserve. We get grace. David went from a desire to a disregard. Then look at this, David's delay. David's delay, uh, read it with me in verse 8. And David was angry because the Lord God had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Literally, that word means a breaking in or a breaching upon Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. Think about this. David is scared of God. I thought he knew who God was. Well... Sometimes when God takes you to the whipping post, you learn some things about His nature that maybe you didn't know before. How can the ark of the Lord come to me, He said. 
So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, verse 11, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. For three months, David is in a slump. And you can understand why. He's allowed anger and fear and guilt and regret to sideline him. You can imagine him there in his royal chamber, pouting, fuming, praying angrily maybe. The Bible says he was, he was angry of the Lord. He was afraid of the Lord. You can have all those emotions at one time, can't you? There was anger because his plans were foiled. This made David look like an inept leader. Kind of like yesterday when we had a Chinese balloon flying over our country. Doesn't look very good on our leadership, does it? I think they need a revival up there in Washington. David is, is he's angry because he looks bad in the eyes of the people. Here he planned this big parade, this big event for God, and a man dies. There's guilt because this innocent man has died because David didn't do his homework in the Old Testament. And then there's fear. Why? Because he doesn't know what God is going to do next. I imagine that if we had church and somebody killed over in the middle of the service, there might be a little bit more fear in the house of God too. That happened, by the way, in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. So don't say that God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. He's still a God of holiness. And then there's regret because David has to sit now in his pouting house, and he watches another man who has the ark parked in his backyard, that guy gets blessed, and David doesn't. Does the blessing of God ever make you jealous? You see somebody praising, somebody worshiping, and you didn't even really want to come to church that day, and you're kind of like, man, I wonder what, what's going on with them. What are they getting that I don't have? That's what David felt. All that rolled up together. It's safe to say that during these three months, David did some soul searching where he was out of fellowship with God. And friend, let me remind you, there's nobody more miserable than a Christian who's out of fellowship with the Lord. Why? Because the Holy Spirit won't let them enjoy sin and they know they're missing out on the joy of the Lord. And David's disobedience here creates kind of like a three-month period of stalemate in his life. He's paralyzed. He plans on, on moving the ark, but his spiritual life is, is just churning up mud. He's not getting anywhere. Let me ask you, truthfully, you ever been there before? Huh? Have you ever been there before? You know what God wants you to do, but you're not getting anywhere in your spiritual life because God is waiting for you to obey. David knew what he needed to do. It was right there in black and white. All he had to do was flip open to the Old Testament and find out the correct way that God said to transport the ark, but he's not willing to do it yet. Because the greatest enemy that you have and the greatest enemy that David had was looking him right in the mirror. It's pride. David didn't like it that God reigned on his parade. 
He didn't like that God disciplined him. He didn't like that God embarrassed him in front of all the nation. He loved it when God conquered the Philistines or when God gave justice on the pagan tribes around him. But what about God when He turns on you and brings discipline into your life? You'll think the same thing David did. God, I don't know why you're doing this to me. God, I know what you want me to do, but <clears throat> I'm going to wait you out. How foolish we can be. Some of you know what I'm talking about because you come to the house of God like this. Your worship is dried up. You come to the house of God. You're not living in fellowship with God. You try and sing. You try and pray. There's nothing in the service for you. You can actually walk out of this place and say, I didn't get anything out of that message. I don't know what's wrong with the preacher. Maybe he spent all week playing golf. Man, them songs Brother Stacy and them picked, that didn't do anything for me. You know why? Because your heart's not right. Now granted, I don't always hit a home run. But I guarantee you, I'm going to get it out of the Word of God. And God said His Word's going to be faithful, despite the speaker. My Word will not go out and return void, but it will accomplish the thing for which I send it to do. You ever tried to worship God when your heart wasn't right? It's not a good place to be. You'd be like David, having your own little pity party. In the late 1800s, there was a preacher named A.J. Gordon. He was a pastor of a large church in Boston. This is the A.J. Gordon of Gordon-Conwell Seminary. He founded it. Well, when A.J. Gordon took over this huge church in Boston, he became under incredible stress to make the church grow. And of course, as everybody always does, they come to the pastor with all sorts of ideas. Pastor, here's what you need to do. Here's the newest thing. Change the music. Add this to the worship service. Don't preach this. Preach that. And he became uh, basically torn in a million different directions over trying to please people. He couldn't get a message together. One Saturday night, he was studying for his message. He said that he fell asleep. And in his sleep, he had a dream. He said in his dream, he arose to the pulpit to preach to the next day. And he said he noticed as he was preaching that a man walked in the back of the church. He followed this man as he walked down the aisle. And he sat kind of toward the back. And he said he was transfixed by this, the presence of this man. There was something magnetic about him. I mean, he, he was distracted from preaching because this man, there was something about his presence that he couldn't take his eyes off. So he said in his dream, he wrapped up his message, they had the invitation, they had the altar call, and he tried to rush through the crowd to get to the man, and he was gone. This dream happened once, twice, three times. Many times, Pastor Gordon had this same dream. And every time he would run through the crowd to try and get to the visitor, he never made it. The visitor was already gone. Till one night, something happened in his dream. He broke from the pulpit. He went to the back of the church to try and find the visitor. And he was met by a deacon. And he asked the deacon, he said, Did you meet the man who came in to visit? And he said, Yes, I did. And he left this. He took the card in his dream from the deacon's hand, turned it over. It said, Jesus of Nazareth. Pastor Gordon said, I hate that I missed him. And the deacon in his dream said, that's okay, Pastor. He said, he'll be back next week. 
And A.J. Gordon said he deduced from that dream that from that point on, the only thing that he had to do in his ministry was to lead and preach to the church in such a way that honored the ever-present visitor, the one who's there in every worship service, the one whom we ought to please, the one whom we ought to honor, the one who our heart should be uh, driven toward, and it's Jesus Christ. I don't have to please you. I don't have to fit in with the world. You don't have to like me. You don't have to agree with this Bible or with the message or, or with the music because all I have to do is please one person and his name is Jesus Christ. And friend, I love you, but I'm telling you, his opinion of me matters a whole lot more than your opinion of me. And that's what the church needs to realize as we think about the nature of worship and coming into the house of God and the presence of God is who are we trying to please? Because he's here. He's here. And he'll be here next week. And the week after. And the week after. Here's the lesson. Delayed obedience defers the blessing we could have today for someday. David didn't get a blessing for three months because he wouldn't obey God. He wouldn't do it God's way. He lost out on the blessing and the Bible says somebody else got it. When you don't obey God... You can't move on. You can't have joy in the Lord until you've addressed the issue that you've neglected. That's David's delay and David's disregard and David's desire. And I'm about to land this thing. Just hold on with me a few more minutes. David's dance. David's dance. Look what verse 12 said. And it was told to King David, The the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all the things to him because of the ark of God. And so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And so David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. I don't know why, but I always imagine David wearing long johns. (laughs) I know that's not right, but... So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Listen, after David reflected on the situation, he decided finally to do it God's way. He purposed in his heart to make things right. And this time he decided to do God's way by studying God's Word to find out what God wanted. Now, this text doesn't tell us the whole story, but if you go into 1 Chronicles 15, the Bible says there in verse 12 that David did it God's way. He says, bring up the ark of the Lord God to the place I have prepared for it because you did not do it the first time. The Lord God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. David went back. He studied the word. He found out, oops, I goofed. I shouldn't have used the cart. I should have used the poles as God told me to. He went back, rectified the situation. And in this second episode, David gets it right. And being a man after God's own heart, That's what David wants to do. He obeys God completely, and the result (laughs) is worship and joy. The Bible says he danced before the Lord. When was the last time you danced before God? You let loose. As Brother Stacy said, you let your hair down, and you didn't care who was watching, and you praised God. Why did David do this? 
Because, friend, there's joy in obedience. There's blessing in being in the will of God when you know you've done it God's way. Don't miss the contrast. The chapter begins with a dead man and ends with a dancing David. On one end, we see the need for reverence because God is holy. And on the other end, we see joy because God is good. And what links the two is a heart of understanding God's character and a willingness to obey Him. And we're to approach God with the same kind of heart. In fact, one writer put it like this. David shows us that a reverent heart can also have a dancing foot. Isn't that good? You can have a a reverent, respectful, sanctified heart and yet a dancing foot and a shout for joy. You can have both of those and that's what this passage is showing us that in order to truly worship God the way that He prescribes, we have to understand who He is in His holiness and what He's done in saving us. And when you do that, there's reverence and there's joy. And it may seem odd, but this scene right here previews the gospel because here we see that the holiness of God judges sin fiercely and suddenly. Uzzah's death should be our death were it not for Christ. For who shall stand in the holy place but he who has clean hands and a pure heart? And a thousand years from this point, Jesus Christ would enter Jerusalem. Just as the ark entered Jerusalem in on this day, except Jesus would be riding on the back of a donkey. And by the way, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the ark was meant to picture. He's the precepts of God. He's the provision of God. He's the salvation of God. And oh yes, He's the presence of God walking around His people. He went into the city at the beginning of the week and they said, Hosanna! And by the end of the week, what did they say? Crucify Him, crucify Him. Why? What necessitated the death of Christ? It's the holiness of God that must punish sin. And just as Uzzah was struck down for sin by God's holiness, Christ is executed as our sin bearer. Why? Because the holiness of God demanded it. But the holiness that God demanded, God supplied in His sinless Son, Jesus Christ. And Christ suffered for you and me the death that we deserve for being unholy, for being unrighteous, for trying to approach God in our own way. It should be me who was struck down dead for living so many years in rebellion against God. But God in His mercy reached down and saved an old country boy. And no, I ain't got over it yet. You see... You can truly worship the Lord as David worshiped the Lord when you understand who God is and what He saved you from. He saved me from death, from hell, from Satan. He saved me from myself. And friend, when you understand what you've been saved from, you're not going to worship the same old way you used to. There's going to be a kick in your step. There's going to be joy in your shout. There's going to be something new. That grabs a hold of you in a worship service and said, I think I might take off a little bit because God has moved in my life. You see, there it all is right there. Reverence for God's holiness and the joy of amazing grace. Do you know what I'm preaching about? Some of you don't have a clue how holy God is. But if you did, you'd be here at this altar repenting and weeping great tears 
you know what? You can't really worship God until you've repented. There can't be any joy, really, truly, until you know God has saved you from utter destruction and hell. You know who God is and what He saved you from. Katie, bar the door. It's a new day. You can't really worship God until you've wept and cried and come to terms with your own stupidity, your own sinfulness, and your own brokenness. How about it, friend? What have we made this thing of worship about? Are we doing the right thing in the wrong way? Are you playing church? Do you really truly understand who God is and what He's done? Our musicians are coming now. We're going to have a time of invitation. I believe God is dealing with hearts right now. And I don't know where you are. But I believe God's spoken to somebody today through this message. What do you need to repent of? What have you been asked to do to be obedient to and you haven't done yet? You're like David. You're wallowing in disobedience. What about worship? Did you come today with the right heart? Or do you need to repent? Are you bound for a devil's hell today? Lost? You'd split hell wide open. You know you're lost. You can change that right now. You can repent. You can turn from your wicked ways. You can find Jesus Christ to be exactly who He said He was. The way, the truth, and the life. Preston's leading us. What's God telling you to do right now?